I bought a copy of the Papa Lip CD, High Time Now, when it was first released in 1998. One of the tracks on it, I'll Be Free, struck me as capturing the optimistic enthusiasm of youth. But what happens to the hopes and dreams of musicians just starting out? I'm Neil Ashworth, and this is I'll Be Free, a podcast about musicians finding a way to make a living, the lessons they've learned, and how they survived, or plan to survive, a life in music. When I perform with Monstrous, it is the most freeing feeling. I feel like an artist, like I have something to give, and it's very satisfying. Sarah Homme is a vocalist and bassist. She studied jazz, a term often used in conjunction with another genre, jazz and blues, jazz rock fusion, acid jazz. So she plays in many bands, including The Butchers and Monstrous. A recent music graduate of UNSW, she decided to make music her life. Let's find out how she's going about it. How did you end up playing bass? Yeah, okay, cool. Well, I was in high school. I was about 15, I think. There was no bass players, double or electric, at my high school at the time. Which high school was this? Well, I moved around a lot, but I ended up finishing at Dom Raimi Catholic College in Five Dock. Some amazing teachers there, like Romina Zapula and Amira Primero. Compared to the other schools, they had an amazing music program, and the teachers are what supported me to continue with my music studies. They got me into playing bass, basically. <laughs> Were you from a musical family? Yes. my From my dad's side... There is. I had a uncle who's famous Assyrian violinist, and my dad sings and plays guitar. But to be honest, I grew up mainly with my mum, so and she doesn't have a musical mo- bone in her body. So, <laughs> um, so it was yeah, it was just kind of me liking it a lot. So you're off at high school then. You run into some teachers and you decide bass. Yeah, so there was this double bass sitting in the corner of the room, dusty, no one touched it. And one occasion our teacher, Miss Apula, took us to a uh, SEMA for the Cool for School Jazz excursion. Yeah, you basically got, got to watch a jazz ensemble and that day we watched The Vampires and Brendan Clark was on double bass that day and I just remember sitting there and thinking that was the coolest thing in the world. I didn't know you could play that instrument. I just thought it was a piece of furniture <laughs> in our music room so I was just like, whoa, what is that? And then on the bus ride back to school I told my teacher, I said, oh, what? that was a double bass and she was like yeah and she was like would you like to learn and I was like yeah I think I'd really like to learn it if I can and she's like yeah of course and then she got me my first lessons with Hannah James and then from there I just I got into every ensemble at school because every ensemble needed bass I was in orchestra I was in the string ensemble I was in jazz big band I was in jazz ensemble and then I was playing musical theater and yeah and then from there because I was playing so much I learned how to sight read a little faster and learn how to read like chords a lot faster yeah and from there I just stuck with it I was a singer beforehand like I did I liked a lot of musical theater but I tended to lean more on bass and there were moments at school where I'd practice sometimes for like two hours after school my mom was super supportive she kept paying for my lessons she got me a double bass that I still have today 
Mm. No, I went to UNSW. Um, I did like a Bachelor of Music. I got into the musical theatre, but I just, I don't know what happened kind of last minute. I was like, oh no, I want to do music. I just want to do music. And so eventually I went to UNSW. But you must have felt reasonably confident with your voice at that stage as well. Yeah, I, I knew there was a lot to develop. That's why I wanted to continue studying it. Is The Butchers the first band you're in? Yes, The Butchers was the first one, and we're still doing that today. And that came out of always having to do performance exams. So at, at UNSW, you have your performance exams, and you usually pick other students play for you. We were in the same kind of ensembles together, and then we eventually just said, why not we just do this? Like, why don't we just start our own kind of group? And then that's with Tom McCracken on drums and Nick Lee on piano. So we did a lot of kind of freebies here and there. You know, we would apply for, say, Manly Jazz, and we played that one year. And then we applied for Kayama Jazz and Blues Festival. And then, yeah, the more we did that, like, people around us kind of booked us for, say, parties and things like that. They were kind of one-off here and Weddings, there. Weddings, parties, anything. Yeah, that's, that's it, like just jazz kind of background music. Right. We've now said the word jazz many, many times. So what headed you in that jazz direction then? Well, ever since I was younger, I always liked, I, like I liked musical theatre and I loved the old Doris Day pictures and the Marilyn Monroe pictures and all of that. Those musical numbers got me into singers like Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan. And then when I got into bass playing, my teacher recommended that I listen to Ray Brown, this double bassist. So it's just my library was just full of jazz players. I grew up in the 2000s, so I still listen to pop and things like that, but I tended to lean more towards jazz during my studies at UNSW. And you say the word jazz, it is a universe of different types of music. Oh, 100%. I play traditional jazz standards sometimes, but a lot of what I play isn't traditional jazz and nothing really will ever be trad jazz ever again. Like that period has passed, especially like modern jazz is kind of, or avant-garde or free improvisation. Like, you know, people use Australian jazz repertoire, you know, and that's kind of very different to, you know, what was in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and so forth. The butchers are going along. There's never just one band happening uh, in a musician's life. So what else is happening? Um, From there... You know, I get asked, uh, being a bass player, I was super lucky. You get asked to do quite a few gigs. There aren't that many of us, apparently, and I found that out, and I was I was especially grateful. Ooh. I know, yeah. <laughs> um, so I got asked to be in, say, Michael Wheatley's Dirty Carpet Disco Band. Little Miss Heidi got a boy for every eyelash. We toured to um, the Perth Fringe Festival and it was <laughs> it was all very new to me. So we would play kind of for burlesque dances and it was opened my mind a lot and it was so fun. And so I played with them and he, Michael Wheatley, introduced me to a lot of old funk records. Like that's when I got into Sly and the Family Stone and Chick and all of that. So he really opened my mind to the kind of repertoire that I could be playing as a bass player, which was super fun. <laughs> yeah. Now, how old were you at that stage? Oh, I was, I think, twenty or yeah, twenty-one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When I when I was doing that, and it was yeah, 
Yeah, because it's not just the music at that stage. It is used some introduction to the, the nomadic lifestyle of a musician. Yeah, it was. And at first, it was kind of difficult to not deal with. It was just, it wasn't difficult. It was just like, oh, this is what my life is going to be like if I continue to go down this path. I never really thought of it. I just always thought I'm going to be making music for the rest of my life. That's what I knew for certain. But I didn't think of the lifestyle. I just finished uni. Now I'm thinking, what kind of job do I want? What kind of lifestyle, in a a sense, do I want is the question I'm really asking myself, because I can't work nine to five. I don't like it. (laughs) So it is not secure. That's the problem. Because, you know, you never know what's going to happen in the future. You just kind of have to believe that there will be something for you if you put yourself out there and you say, yes, I'm I'm going to take this opportunity, say yes to this opportunity. I'm pretty sure I'm the first to graduate with a bachelor's degree from both sides of my family. And it was very much, you know, you go out and you get a job and you have some financial security and this just doesn't. And I just have to just believe that it's going to be okay. (laughs) So, yeah. You've got the Butcher's Jazz Trio, which is a jazz trio. Yeah. (laughs) And then you've got Michael Wheatley, burlesque, you've got uh, an introduction to a whole you know, glamorously seamy side of the entertainment industry. Yeah, yeah. But you seem to take to it. Yeah, that's super glamorous. And it was very different. And I did really enjoy, because I feel like a lot of the jazz gigs that I did up to that point, we were a lot of background music, which from other musicians I heard can be quite soul crushing, but I never really experienced playing to an audience that is really listening to you. Michael Wheatley was that first band that I was in that we were playing and people would dance and listen and be watching intently. And it was like, oh, so this is what people are talking about. And so when I went back to doing the jazz stuff, it was a bit difficult to be like, yeah, we're just kind of background musicians. I mean, it's fine. You know, it's that's that's that gig. And Michael Wheatley was a different gig and it was just nice. In that situation, you need to be able to perform. It's yes. not just play. You have yeah. to perform. Yeah. yeah. I think that's when my high school drama theatrics came out. I was like, yes, I can finally be over the top and it's okay. <laughs> this is the environment to do it in. <laughs> but And Michael always encouraged me to kind of dress how I want to and, you know, really get into the music. And You're in Perth for that. Does that continue on um, with Michael Wheatley, the more gigs? Yeah, yeah. So we recently did burlesque at The Bones, Lazy Bones Lounge Marrickville. We did that at the beginning of the year and we're doing another one in June, I think at the end of June. So that happens, you know, semi-regularly. Tell me about monsters. So I was thinking of ways to better myself. Could it be in what I drink or the food I eat? I read in Cosmo you should drink some tea. It'll make your skin glow and you'll feel happy. And then I heard her. She said, ooh. Yeah, well... I just really missed writing and composing things. Up to that point, I felt like I was playing a lot of other people's music. But I really wanted something that was mine and something that I could say was mine and my work. It is a collective project. I started this band with a few girls, and it started with Jade, who I met through the uh, Young Women's Jazz Orchestra. All right, now Jade's hair is made out of sunshine and silk. Don't ask her how she does it. She can drink fireball whiskey like it's water and can keep a straight face while riding a roller coaster. And then Abby depped one time for Young Women's Jazz Orchestra, so I met Abby through there, and then we've also played other gigs together. 
randomly. We just get put together. <laughs> so back here is Abby, our drummer. Jenna I also met through Young Women's Jazz Orchestra. So Jade is on keys, Abby is on drums, and Jenna's on sax. All right, so over here we got Jenna. Say hey. Now, Jenna's a vegetarian, but she could kill a man with her bare hands. She says she'll call you back, but let's be real. She ain't got time for that. At first, it was just Jade, and then we decided to get Abby. And then we thought, oh, we should get another player. You know, we need some color on top or something like that. So then was kind of going down the road of trying to find a non-female musician. So we were looking for that, but then I remember I was playing a gig with the Young Women's Jazz Orchestra and Jenna was taking a solo and it's just in my mind, I was like, no, she's so good. <laughs> I need to have her. She's so easy to accompany as a bass player. Like she sits so well into the pocket, but she's able to go on her own tangent and really just bring magic to anything. So I told Jay and Jay was like, yes, Let's, let's get Jenna. And with Monstrous, when I was writing for Monstrous, a lot of the time I would write very simple bass lines, my lyrics, whatever that was. I'd bring it to them and I'd say, this is my groove. You guys do whatever you like. And that's when I say it's more of a collective thing because we were composing together. And that's where I guess that jazz element is, is that it was a collaborative kind of thing. We found that, you know, we started to do a few gigs. We recorded our EP with Michael Wheatley, actually, at his studio. Yeah, we just found we were getting a really good reaction. I was really afraid at first. I'm not afraid, I was just doubting my abilities because, I don't know, you, you're about to finish a degree of music and this is what I'm going to have to show for it. And I felt like it wasn't to standards a lot of the time. But people, you know, it was different. It, so people tended to like it. I got a good response. Well, you've done it. Yeah, you've crossed the line. Yeah. You've done it This lioness is ready for a fight Oh, you've done it now With the songs that you were writing, Mm -hmm. were you performing them live first to decide which are the ones that are most suitable for the EP or did it work the other way around? So we did a few rehearsals together. Uh, We played one gig without the EP, but I had always planned to record them before kind of gigging because I wanted to see, because I know with today's way of listening to new music, it's very much people like to listen to it on their streaming devices. So I knew that's what needed to happen. And also I just wanted something, it's not physical, but I wanted something that I could direct people to, like this is my work, this is what I do. And uh, so yeah, the EP came first and then we started to book some gigs. I started supporting people, getting asked to support other bands, which was really helpful. Have you seen that man? Tall and handsome. Have you seen that man? Tall and handsome. When I first heard Butterflies, I thought, 
I'm going to play this again. Right. There's a lot coming together here, isn't there? There's jazz, there's slam poetry. Can I say it? There's a bit of burlesque in there as well. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember writing this poem, actually. Is that where it started? Did it start as a poem? Yeah, it did, definitely. I wrote it a while back before I even put it in the song. And I wrote it, and it was one of those poems where it just kind of flowed. It just came out of me. I was just like one line after the next, after the next, and it was super long. <laughs> but I was like, oh, yeah, this is just it, like this. And um, I remember one time I was just, there's no correct way to kind of compose or anything like that, I feel like. And I, one day I was just noodling on my bass, and I started to sing that main riff. Have you seen that man? And I was like, oh, yeah, this is where my mind, the subconscious of my mind is taking me at the moment. So let's just go there. And then just after noodling around, I started to recite with the bass groove going as well. I started to recite some of the poetry and I thought, oh, this could be really, really cool. Because I wanted to start doing slam poetry, but I was like, might as well just do it in the song. <laughs> and uh, I brought it to the girls and the girls really brought it alive. Yeah, so Jade added in this real like different time signature and we added in stops, little solos. And, you know, we gave it a bit of a story arc, I guess. Arcs in the music, so it had its ups and downs, which I really enjoyed. There's a whole child woman thing happening there. Yeah, it's, it's definitely about becoming a woman and feeling liberated enough to do so, I guess. It is honestly pretty much about sexual liberation and kind of just accepting that, you know, the emotions I have and not repressing them and things like that, which I think is a serious problem for young women today. Yeah, it's about that kind of journey into realizing that and just growing and, you know, having these desires and these wants and needs and it's okay to feel this way and it's it's just a kind of emotional roller coaster when I had written it so uh, and then you take it into the studio and uh, Michael Wheatley produces it and adds another layer on top as well yeah well I call it like our our little uh, tag line I guess on our social media is that music that will make you orgasm it's kind of oh. that <laughs> it's that yeah he definitely did he brought it to life I mean he introduced me also to Candy Royale who is another Australian slam poet and she has an album as well where she does slam poetry with uh, some loops and stuff in the background some beautiful music that she created rest in peace Candy. Yeah so he introduced me to that so he already had experience with that type of music and when I first I, <laughs> I sent him the recordings you know where it was just me playing bass and, and you know saying the lyrics it was very bad raw recordings. I sent them to him without the girls in the band and I just said oh you know would you be able to help me out and he was really supportive yeah he he really brought it to life also another thing that I was really happy with was how he worked with us you know he was super open-minded you know when the other girls came in and they played their parts and he was super supportive and just like yeah that was he was just constant compliments and it was really good um, and I really respect his opinion you know I love the stuff that he creates all the music that he creates so you're into slam poetry is there an influence there? Yeah, so I always loved poetry. I love um, Rupikua. She's one of my favorite. I think someone bought me her book as a gift once and I couldn't stop reading it. I'd, you know, front to back, I'd keep reading it over and over and over again. I loved it. And I'd even memorize some of them. That's how much I loved it. Um, and then from there... I kind of looked up Ripikua and you get, you know, YouTube recommends. And I think I was on a holiday or something and I was just stuck, you know, going through one slam poetry video after another. And I, I fell in love with another poet called Blythe Baird. 
She deals with a lot of feminist topics. I just loved how they were able to get their point across, but really creatively, something really drew me to it. I haven't seen much live, to be honest. I've watched a lot of videos, but I've cried during videos. I've just been so emotionally just, wow, you know, this is a lot to take on. So yeah, I really love that it's in your face, especially. It's there and people are just drawn. Like the minute you start speaking, I feel like on stage with any sort of theatrics or with conviction and confidence, people will listen. Like that's just what they'll do. You know, I, I do it all the time. You know, it's just what happens. And I like that I was able to n- not be that background musician for a second. And I was able to really get people to listen to me and listen to what I had to say. It is that performance. You want people to leave and you've probably left a concert like that and been like, I'm never going to forget this. This was the, one of the best moments of my life. And it's like, that's how you want people to leave. Or you want people to unleash. I don't mind if I make people angry after they leave, as long as they feel some sort of emotion and it's to an extent. <laughs> you know, they're like, I loved it. I loved it so much. I'm going to tell all my friends about it. And I'm like, thank you. Or I don't like what you said. It's super whatever. It's like, I honestly don't care. I just love that you're feeling something. <laughs> I love that I've brought something out of you. I said, boys like it when I play you rough. Yeah, boys like it when I... Yeah, boys like it when I am tough. Yeah, boys like it when I... Yeah, you know, I'm the cool girl. Yeah, boy, I'm the real girl. I've got body and I've got curves and I'll make the honey you deserve. I said, I'll make the honey... How do you book gigs? <laughs> a lot of young musicians ask me that, and I'm like, I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> but a lot of it is honestly just have an email template, be emailing these places, go in and talk, Camelot Lounge, whatever it may be. Yeah, it's just about honestly asking. There's no harm in asking, and you will get so many rejections. I did, and so many of them won't want to pay you either. And so you just got to ask, and you can do that through emails. You can do that through going in. You can do that through calling, face on messaging on social media platforms as well. It's really easy because you can send your page or your website or whatever straight, like direct it straight to them from there. You need to put some money in it. That is the tough part. I mean, a lot of the times if you say doing a music degree at UNSW, we were allowed free studio time. So we recorded some Butcher's stuff at that time, which was really good. It's about the people you know as well. Be able to be like, a lot of them will be doing projects. Say at SAE is where the Butcher's also recorded because a young girl was doing her sound engineering project or something. And so she said, oh, do you mind if I record your band for free? And we were like, yes, that's fine. I mean, the thing is you're getting a student to do it. It will be amateur, that's just the way it is, but that's fine. But those recordings uh, will be worth a fortune one day. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what you need to kind of book gigs is definitely some sort of recording. And the good thing as well is home recording is very easily available. It's not going to be the best, but it can go on SoundCloud, which is a free streaming thing. And there is a lot of home recording tracks out there on that platform. So yeah, you can home record as well. That's fine. As long as it's to some degree, you know, quality. So yeah, you definitely need recordings. You definitely need social media. If you're a covers band, you know, covering 70s funk or something like that, and you want to play it in RSL, reviews, testimonials help, things like that. Yeah, nobody does CDs. No, they don't. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody does CDs anymore. I didn't even bother printing CDs 
for Monstrous. I was just like, no, I'm not wasting my money because I know people aren't going to buy it, especially my demographic. They all stream now. It's just they might buy records, but they won't buy CDs. If you want to make money with your band, especially, you know, a bit later on when you have your recordings and you're playing your gigs and you've getting some good reactions and people are really digging the band, start making merch. Merch sells much better and it can fund your next studio recording or whatever. That's why I've put more money into merch because I've made more money on merch than I have on gigs. Are we talking about those earrings there, <laughs> yes. are we? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the earrings, things like that, T-shirts, you know, make it interesting. I, I want to make also necklaces as well. You know, I've done a little bit of research into what merch works the best. Women tend to lead to more buying earrings. It's kind of catered for them and they love it so far and they've been buying it. So I'm like, if it's working, it's working for this one group of people. And I honestly don't mind as long as it's working. Going back to what you need to do to book gigs. Studio recordings, you need to just email a lot, have your website if possible. But if you don't have a website, Facebook, Instagram pages, where there's a lot of content in there for people to see, YouTube channel, things like that. You're at the stage where you have decided that music is your lot. Mm -hmm. But how do bass players and vocalists, how do you make a living out of this? I do have about four jobs at the moment. I mean, this is me personally. One of the jobs that I have is I work in a retail store selling instruments. I teach privately and I gig and then I compose. So I write lyrics. I, I currently have one project where I'm writing for another band. Those are the sorts of avenues. But I've started ever since graduating. I'm trying to figure out ways to be financially secure. And, and so, yeah, I've been looking into it. And I started this Creative Plus Business um, I didn't start it. It's a it's another organization called Creative Plus Business. It's a New South Wales government thing, and they pair you up with business mentors to help you figure out your different streams of revenue. Yeah, it's been super helpful. She's also my the mentor I have is Rosie, and she's helped me figure out accounting <laughs> as well, which I didn't realize was I was like, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. So she's made me think about yeah, accounting and insurance and just all those boring admin things that I need to think about. But then we've also been talking about grants, funding, sponsorship, things like that. So how to write for grants, because that is one way, is to apply for grants and hopefully it will help you with your next installation. There's money out there in grants. Oh, definitely. You do your searching and there's so much There's so much you can apply for. You'll get rejected. I have. <laughs> but there's, there is, I still haven't even looked at everything. There's so much to apply for. That's one way. Learn how to record at home. The minute, so I've decided I wanted to do, start doing an Ableton course, kind of teach me how to record at home because I realized by recording at home, it can be useful for promoting your material. Yeah, just staying active online, which is super important in order to stay relevant, I guess, or to get your music out there and be heard a lot more. Because that's one thing. It's super important to just keep putting your work out there. I feel like a lot of the musicians I deal with, a lot of artists I deal with, they're so obsessed with this perfectionism. And I feel like a lot of the time, I'm never happy. Even with the EP, there were so many things I could have done to make it better or could have been going on for years now. But at some point, you've got to get it out there so you can move on to the next thing. Because this is the way it is now. you just got to keep pumping things out. So, yeah, recording at home is a good one and gigs, 
try and find as many gigs as you can. There are so many Facebook community groups that you can say, I'm a bass player looking for some work in cover bands. They will love that. And then the good thing about cover bands, which I know it can be a bit soul crushing, but you get, you know, maybe two or three gigs a month or whatever in your cover bands, you're laughing. It's really good money and you're able to sustain yourself to then work on your other projects as well. And that's something you have your workhorse, which is your music tutoring or your cover bands or your part-time work doing something. And then you have your unicorn project and that's kind of your original music, which is what Monstrous is for me. As much as I want to make money off of it and make it my income and things like that, at the end of the day, it's not about the money. It's about making something that I really love. And if I'm not making money, it doesn't matter. With other work, you can get yeah cover bands, jazz gigs, open yourself up to, say, arranging. Try to make it things you enjoy, obviously, and try to start your own residency. If you can, try to find a residency that you can have. One of my mates, um, they just started Park Music. It happens on Sundays in Petersham Park. And they've got council permission to kind of put up this little tent and they put live music sets on. It was only the second week I played there and they already had quite a big audience and then the audience can donate. So then you can start something there. And the minute they have enough people knowing that there's going to be music on in the park, they'll get more donations, they can pay their musicians and then all of a sudden something has started. So a lot of the time it's it can be very frustrating because live music in Sydney is not the best. There's no funding in the arts and culture. Not no, but there isn't enough. And it's really upsetting, but all we can do at the moment, you know, if you really love it and you want to make a difference, a lot of the time it's about just getting out there and doing something, starting from scratch from somewhere, yeah. You gotta be ready to do anything. You gotta stubbornness is not tolerated really if you wanna be making a living. Oh, I'm just a serious jazz musician and this is all I'm gonna do. It's like, well, cannot opening yourself up to to like other opportunities. Like you never know where you're gonna have fun. Like I actually enjoy playing cover bands, not all the time, but every now and then, you know, it's fun. It's usually someone's wedding and everyone's usually pretty happy. <laughs> so it's a good gig. <laughs> uh, someone once said, you know, to have a hit you need to be able to either sing along, dance to it, or it's going to make you cry. (laughs) How conscious are you of writing something that will become a hit? Yeah, because I listened to a lot of pop growing up and lots of R&B, I kind of knew in my mind what's catchy and what's not (laughs) I don't know if I'm conscious of it I think I just I just subconsciously I tend to write riffs and kind of at least I've found when I've been composing I tend to write more like things that are repetitive and things like that which is what is you know makes something a hit or things that are catchy and things like that you try to write a pretty easy melody but it's still um, memorable I don't know yeah if I'm conscious about it I think it just kind of happens when I'm composing just because of what I've listened to and what I've played sometimes yeah you know especially when I'm with the girls and I and I bring an idea to them and I'm like what do you think or whatever and they'll give me their advice and it's definitely good hearing because their musical tastes are so broad and big so it's good hearing their opinion and they're like oh yeah it's you know whatever it is and it just helps out a lot last question then are you free Oh, well, look, to be honest, when I perform with Monstrous, it is the most freeing feeling. I I feel like an artist, like I have something to give and it's very satisfying. And just even when we make mistakes, I'm like, I don't even care. I, this is the best time I've had in my life, really. <laughs> 
And I, I definitely feel very free in that sense. Of course, I'd like to make it more of my living. That is the goal, is to just be a musician. I love teaching, but at the same time, it's it's not really what I want to do. I want to compose, I want to perform, I want to write lyrics. You know, time moves the fastest when I'm doing that sort of stuff. Yeah, I feel really free in those moments. Have you seen that man? Tall and handsome. Have you seen that man? Just as I finished this episode, Sydney went into another lockdown and all the music venues are closing. Monstrous is back on the beach. You can find Sarah on Instagram at Sarah.home. That's at S A R A H dot H O M E H. And Monstrous has their own website, monstrousband.com. In the next episode, we move up to the Central Coast to hear from Charlie Margin, who runs the studio Charlie's Place. A word, a shirt, a picture, birthday cards, the spaghetti I ate, and the sighing I make, my tolerance will not develop. Produced and mixed by Neil Ashworth. The intro music is I'll Be Free by Papalips from the album High Time Now. Check out the website fishwishing.com.au for all the other details, including a track list. Continue to bring out the weakness he has created. That sly fool, but not a fool at all. He knew what he was doing. Oh, he knew it all right. When he touched those beautiful lips to mine, he opened my mouth and let his butterflies go. Each kiss dived into my skin with the ease of an Olympic athlete until my body, my body became the sanctuary to which these beautiful...